everybody, and welcome to the Wasatch Report. I'm Suzanne Sherman, and Jeff Johnson's joining me in the studio today. This is going to be episode number 37. Joining us is our wonderful friend, Mike Meharry. Mike is an author and a historian, and we'll let him read his credentials. But before we bring him on, you can follow us on Facebook at Suzanne Sherman's The Wasatch Report radio show, Prep Podcasts. If you're interested in learning about preparedness, and there's a big storm in the Northeast right now, and it's dipping down into the 50s in Florida, so thoughts and prayers to our friends out there, um, go go check out the Red Hot Chili, C-H-I-L-L-Y, the Red Hot Chili Prepper podcast. And if you listen to us live on Facebook, please feel free, let us know that you're here. It really gives us encouragement to see who's in there, ask some questions, say hey and uh, weigh in. And if you're not listening live and hearing us on Anchor FM, we want to thank you. Please like the app, like our show, rate it. Uh, Please tell your friends. That's how you can direct traffic our way. We really appreciate the followers we've been getting over there. And you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. I want to encourage you also to go to SuzanneCSherman.com. And from there, you can see articles published from Good Friends of the Tenth Amendment Center, as well as the American Conservative, Abbeville Institute. And I also have blogs on both federalism and preparedness. So all sorts of good stuff there. And we also have uh, an announcement, our uh, book that I've been collaborating on, The Lost Frontier Handbook is finally out. It is a comprehensive self-reliance uh, guide, and it takes a, it's a take from uh, how the pioneers lived. So it's a 268-page book. Presently, it's an ebook, but if you do purchase the ebook for just the price of shipping, you will get the second edition. And we're working on some improvements and a chapter on chickens, which I will be. Uh, writing as well. So we'll be getting we'll be getting that out as soon as possible. But you can get that at lostfrontierhandbook.com. Without further ado, Mike Meharry, how are you, my friend? I'm great. I'm I'm battened down. I've got my bread and my milk. So we're ready for the the third frost of 2020. Well, no, actually it would be the third frost of winter 20, because we had frost last in any way. We're getting ready to frost, man. <laughs> Well, you know, these have been exciting times right now. But before we get going on some of the current events, let people know you are the author of the Constitution Owner's Manual. You are the National Communications Director of the Tenth Amendment Center. You are the editor and you do a podcast for Ship Shift Gold as well. And then for those of you who want your Jesus to keep our sanity, that's why I kind of go to prep preparedness. You have an outstanding podcast called Godarchy. Even if you are not of faith, the principles discussed in Godarchy are, apl- are applicable across the board. So don't think that you have to turn it away if, you, uh, if you're not a believer. Did I leave anything out? No, I think you covered everything. And I appreciate the, the kind words and the opportunity to be once again on the show. I always enjoy we, talking to you. We always have fun, don't we? Oh, yeah. Who what knows what's going to happen? I told somebody that. I think I posted that on Facebook. You, you, never you know did. What's going to happen when you, <laughs> you and I never, get together? Right, the black helos. If you hear something, look up and hide. Just you know, <laughs> cut the broadcast. Uh, one, uh, let's get your take on episode thirty-six. I had uh, another good friend of ours, mutual friend, author, historian, Dave Benner, come on, and we each kicked around different uh, ideas with regards to the Texas lawsuit. 
which I, I found it ironic, and we'll expound upon that a little bit, but that for once the Supreme Court understood the concept of federalism. But my question was, did they do so in an appropriate circumstance? So just backing up briefly, was the, the, the basic premise of the Texas lawsuit wasn't to overturn the election, but simply to enforce the rules that had been enacted by the state legislatures in the states at issue. Now, rather than just having that being the blanket concept, I wanna take apart the differences, particularly between Pennsylvania, because the change in Pennsylvania was enacted by the state legislature. The issue being it was a violation of the state constitution. I think that's a little bit different than the issue, for instance, in where they extended the ballot deadlines, I think in Wisconsin and Michigan and in Georgia, where we had a change in the election procedures, I think with regards to uh, matching the signatures with the envelopes, that was done by a consent decree with the governor, I think, and the secretary of state and the DNC coincidentally. So that was a violation because it was outside of, it was done outside the state legislative process. So far, so good. Makes sense to me. Makes uh, I'll, sense. I'll mud. <laughs> so, here, so here's the funny thing. I have followed this zero. Like I now know uh, 30 times more about the lawsuit than I did. I never read an article about it. I just don't care. It's not time well spent, is it? <laughs> it really isn't. <laughs> but you do know enough about the principles of federalism and right. the proper role vis-a-vis -vis the state and the federal government and the Supreme Court when it has to juggle issues amongst them. So based on what I have said, what the premise or I guess like Dave's, Dave's stance was, look, the Supreme Court said Texas, they didn't even want to hear the case. So they right. said, we're not, we're not going to hear it. But Alito and Thomas said, you know, we should hear it or we should at least let them file, but then we're going to den deny, uh, deny it on the basis of standing, meaning what these states do is none of the state of Texas's uh, business. My uh, And my take on that also from the lawyer's perspective, it seems to me that there were so many, uh, I think, um, safe holds for the preservation of the state sovereignty and for the states, because for instance, when we had a um, the bicameral legislature, legislature only one based on population, there was a concern that the larger states would run roughshod over the smaller rural, right. hence, the, hence the electoral college as well. We're gonna touch on that in a little bit. So the concern that I had is if some states are going to run roughshod and not play by the rules they all agreed upon set forth in Article 2, Section 2, Clause 1, why, or Article 2, Section, yeah, I, I had it right the first time. How could that not be a, a constitutional question ripe for review by the Supreme Court? And we're not going to beat this to death because we did a whole show, but I do want you to weigh in. Well, again, I honestly don't know enough about the details of the case to really even give a, a really good informed opinion. You know, by and large, the voting procedures, it is left to the states to make those determinations. Within the framework, as you mentioned, there there are some constitutional clauses that um, that direct these federal elections. So, I mean, my gut is to think that given that we're talking about a presidential election, that there probably is some space there for the Supreme Court to weigh in. Um, but, you know, I may be talking out of the out of the wrong side of my mouth because I just don't know enough about it. 
I will say this, this I do know, the fact that this has become such an issue mm -hmm. tells us just how far off the rails we have gone. When it matters this much, who is in the White House? Because it really shouldn't matter all that much. There should be so little power concentrated in Washington, D.C., particularly in the hands of the executive. That most people shouldn't notice whether Donald Trump or Joe Biden is the president. Hey, yeah. and, and, and the fact that we're having this, I, I mean, people are just like, I see it. I flash it flashes by on my Facebook feed and I scroll on. But, you know, I mean, there's people that are still holding on to this, that Donald Trump is still going to be. I, I don't. Ew. <laughs> They're both awful, so I, I don't know. I, and that's not a very good answer to your question, but I'm just ignorant on the issue because I, I honestly, I mean, I hate to say this, I don't care. Well, and you know what I've said time and time again is, the as you said, the office of the president should be so inconsequential. You know, <laughs> Inconse like? Thank you. That's a, that's a lot of syllables for this yes, late in the day for me. <laughs> 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 that I'd be fine if most of the population didn't even know who the president is. Like you said, it simply shouldn't matter. That being said, you know, uh, I do think that how it was handled and the shenanigans that went on in the States, it, it, you know, as you said, sheds light on how corrupt the system is. And with so much federal overreach, the stakes are so high. Mm -hmm. There's a party that is that will win at all costs. We've seen that. On election night in 2016, I was watching with my son. I said, you wait and see. All hell is going to break loose in 2020. Um, and back when Trump was claiming credit for the economy and the markets and everything, I thought he's really stupid to do this because when it goes south, and it will before the election, what for how they're going to do it, I don't know. Now we do know. He's going to have to take the blame for it too, right? You know, and his 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 cheering section is saying, "Well, he had no control over the virus. Well, he had no control over the market either." Um, let's talk a little bit about one of the reasons this is so important is because the Bill of Rights has been so misinterpreted and used to invert the federal system into a national system, which I say time and time again was absolutely rejected at the Philadelphia Convention, James Madison, Edmund Randolph put forth the, the Virginia plan, which has essentially what we have right now. Mm -hmm. And those president at the Philadelphia Con Convention said, no, this is not gonna happen. So let's talk a little bit about the Bill of Rights. Uh, when they were ratified, there were some people that said, we don't need a Bill of Rights at all. Mm -hmm. Not because they didn't think it was important to have guns, uh, but tell us a little bit about that. Who are the who, who thought it was worthy and who, who thought we no, we don't need it? Well, the supporters of the Constitution <clears throat> who were arguing effectively that, you know, this is a government of, of of a few delegated powers were arguing that a Bill of Rights wasn't necessary because it was implied by the delegation of powers that they wouldn't have any control over the press. There was no delegated power to create a national religion. Uh, you know, there was no there was no government power to regulate firearms. And uh, so, you know, those folks were, were arguing this isn't necessary. Your Bill of Rights is effectively implied in the Constitution itself because it's spelling out the powers that it has. And whatever's not listed isn't uh, available to the federal government. The anti-federalists, the opponents of the Constitution, were saying, yeah, you know, there's some loopholes here that we we kind of want to close up. And uh, and so you had, you know, the argument and, and I think there were some valid reasons. I think that 
within the exercise of some of the delegated powers, there was the potential to uh, reach into infringing on certain natural lights. I think firearms is a good example. Uh, for instance, you could end up, and we have ended up with regulation of firearms under the auspices of, uh, of commerce. Uh, so, you know, the, the Second Amendment kind of closes that loophole. It says, <clears throat> even in the legitimate exercise of commerce power, you can't infringe on the right to keep and bear arms. So that was the that was the the kind of debate that was had. And, and ultimately, a lot of states were not going to ratify without a Bill of Rights. And therefore, that's why we have the uh, Bill of Rights that we have today. And I think the biggest misconception about the Bill of Rights, in fact, we're going to discuss that right after the break. But the biggest misconception about the Bill of Rights is that it applies to all the states. Mm -hmm. And when we get back, we're going to discuss how that uh, how exactly that happened right after we thank our, our friends over at Anchor FM. All right, getting back, this is the Wasatch Report. Mike Meharry, the National Communications Director from the 10th Amendment Center, is joining us today. And where we left off was uh, yesterday, the Bill of Rights. It's the anniversary of the ratification of the Bill of Rights. And in the previous segment, we were saying how there were some people that felt that the Bill of Rights really wasn't necessary because it's simply addressing powers that were never delegated to the general government by the states, but there were some that said, eh, you know, we're not quite so sure about this. Let's just put it in a, a little bit more in writing to uh, instill confidence in the public of the uh, benevolent ends uh, of this new government. And that's in the preamble. Everybody's heard about the We the People preamble. I will tell you this, throughout my undergrad time at public law at UCLA, studying political science, public law, UCLA throughout my old entire time in law school, as well as bar review, never once was the preamble to the Bill of Rights mentioned ever. Can you explain why that was important and how the Bill of Rights came to be applicable against the states? Yeah, I'm the same. I, uh, you know, I took a number of 300 level history courses when I was in college. I never knew there was a preamble to the Bill of Rights until I started working at the 10th Amendment Center. Right. Uh, <laughs> The preamble, and you know, that was just 10 years ago. So I went through most of my adult life not knowing that there was a preamble to the Bill of Rights. It's very important. And, and as you mentioned, the preamble tells us exactly what the Bill of Rights was intended to do. And when you read that preamble, it is very clear that the Bill of Rights was intended to further restrict the powers of the federal government, as you said, to instill confidence, to uh, basically take these things that were already implicit in the constitution, make them explicit. So there was no debate. And, uh, and, and it's clear that they were talking about the federal constitution and the national government. And we know for a fact that when Madison first introduced the, uh, the provisions of the bill of rights, he actually put them in various places in the constitution. It didn't, wasn't originally intended to be just a separate document when it was originally presented, it was going to go actually in the text. And it was clear that Madison was wanting some of these to apply to the states. And if you go back to the Philadelphia Convention, Madison actually wanted the federal government to have veto power over state laws. And that was rejected in the Philadelphia Convention. And the idea of applying this federal Bill of Rights to the states was rejected during the, or during the drafting of the Bill of Rights. It wasn't even considered during the ratification. 
So this Bill of Rights was only intended to restrain state governments. It was understood that states have their own constitutions that delegate powers to the state governments. And these state constitutions also have Bill of Rights included in them that bind the actions of the state government. So you don't really even need a federal Bill of Rights to apply to the states because the states have their own Bill of Rights. And as sovereign political entities, it's up to those populations to decide the extent that they want their state power to extend. Uh, and, and that was understood. It wasn't even questioned. There was one Supreme Court case, Barron versus Baltimore. Um, one of the few things that, that I find uh, very notable in a good way from John Marshall is he explained very simply that the uh, the federal constitution has a federal bill of rights that applies to the federal governments and that the states have their own state constitutions and that, that the federal bill of rights doesn't apply. That was settled law until along comes the 14th Amendment. And you know, it wasn't even really the 14th Amendment because that was initially understood just to uh, to apply the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which listed a very specific set of privileges and immunities, which were basically things like um, the right to contract, the right to travel across state lines, uh, access to the legal system. Those things were spelled out. That's what the Fourth Amendment was intended to, 14th Amendment was intended to protect. And then about 50 years later, the Supreme Court just pulled out of thin air this idea of incorporation that somehow the 14th Amendment magically applied the Bill of Rights to the states. And now we have a situation today where, in effect, the Supreme Court serves as uh, judge and jury over all state laws, and it has given the courts basically the ability to legislate at the state level. And it's been a disaster. Too many people think that this is a great idea. Oh, the federal government's going to protect us from the overreaching powerful states. No, that's not what happens at all. What happens is the Supreme Court expands the power of government and then applies that to all of the states. And I'll give you a perfect example. I was writing a bill report uh, just the other day on, uh, I think it was, uh, I think it's in Kentucky. Uh, I might have the state wrong. I think it was Kentucky. Uh, but there's uh, a piece of legislation that would prohibit no-knock raids. Uh, and this is where police, you know, basically bang into people's houses and, and without announcing and it's created situations where people get shot. And the whole reason that we even have no-knock raids today is through a, a series of Supreme Court cases, through this incorporation doctrine that has become settled law in all of the states that allows police officers to barge into people's homes and uh, wave guns around without even announcing themselves. Uh, qualified immunity, another thing that's been a, kind of a hot topic of conversation that bas basically allows police officers to violate your rights and and you have no recourse. This is, again, something that was created by the Supreme Court and applied to all of the states to the incorporation doctrine. So for every case that you can name to me where the Supreme Court has protected us from the states, I can name about 30 where the federal government has actually expanded its power and, and it's been a net loss for liberty. And the problem is the states, and the, Thomas Jefferson said that the 10th Amendment was the cornerstone of the Constitution, mm -hmm. and the states were supposed to be the ultimate arbiter of the overreach of federal power by their own powers to ignore, and we're going to get into that a little bit, uh, laws that go beyond the federal uh, realm of delegated powers. 
And when you mentioned the veto over the over the state laws in coming that was proposed by James Madison, I believe that was supposed to be a legislative veto, which was again rejected. But what was rejected via the legislature, the uh, federal judiciary picked up the slack and now do uh, regularly what the states were um, never intended to have happen to them. And this is what I found interesting with the Texas case with regards to the elections. Well, the Supreme Court recognized that, you know, what happened, and I would arguably say in Pennsylvania is a matter to be settled within the state of Pennsylvania. I would argue differently for the others, but all of a sudden the Supreme Court wants to mind its own business. And I'm thinking, you know, this, this stance is very, it's disingenuous at best, because as you just mentioned, uh, I believe there was an article I wrote uh, for you guys about warrantless blood draws from unconscious uh, suspects in DUI cases. And uh, the conservative liberal, uh, you know, conservative darling justice, Clarence Thomas is okay with even conscience suspects having a needle put in their arm and having yeah. a blood drawn without a warrant. So, you know, how, how in the world is the federal government expected to uh, protect our liberties when the Supreme Justices, by capriciousness, can decide what those what those rights are in the first place? It was never intended to be that way. I can't think of a dumber system than to have, <laughs> to have nine politically connected lawyers effectively I mean, it's an oligarchy and they have almost unlimited power. You know, I was on a talk radio show out here in, in Utah, an AM station. And one of the hosts said, you know, with regards to Supreme Court sorting out all these laws and, you know, justifying what 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 violations are unacceptable from a federal viewpoint. And the host said, without the Supreme Court, we'd have fighting in the street. I said, thanks <laughs> to the Supreme Court. We have fighting in the street. And exactly. I think the past four years in particular has shown us that people are literally losing their minds over, you know, who's going to be sitting in the in uh, the Oval Office. Let's turn our attention to uh, to Donald Trump for a little bit, because I, I think there is justifiable outrage in how the elections were handled. That being said, he's not a guy that garners a lot of a lot of sympathy. Let me share a listener comment really quick from Bob in Texas. Thomas Jefferson warned that if the judiciary gained too much power, we would lose our freedom and the republic. These guys were prophetic. Another one of my favorites was John Taylor of Caroline saying, beware the unholy alliance between government and finance. And here yeah. we are now. Anyway, I'll let you address the point I brought up. Yeah, as far as uh, as, as far as Trump goes, I, I don't really think, honestly, that you're going to see a lot of difference in actual policies going forward. Um, you know, everybody's like, oh my gosh, we've got Biden now. We're going to have federal gun control. We already do. <laughs> yeah, Donald Trump enforced the reams of already existing unconstitutional federal gun control at a higher level than Obama did. And he added to implemented it. To, yes, yeah. he added to it. So, you know, uh, how much debt has been added to the uh, the national debt since oh, uh, Trump took office? Over seven trillion dollars, I believe, is the is the number. I don't have the exact number off off the top of my head. Um, so, and he said he'd do the opposite. By the way, oh yeah, he said it would be very easy. 
to uh, I, I guess he was going to wait to his second term to do that and to bring uh, the troops home too. second term. Right, right. I, you know, that's the other thing that I hear all the time. Well, he didn't start any new wars. Well, he didn't end any either. You know, he actually ramped up bombing in Afghanistan in uh, 2018. He actually dropped more bombs in Afghanistan than Obama did during Obama's troop surge. Uh, he ramped up military operations in Somalia. He vetoed um, a Yemen. bill that would have gotten us out of Yemen. So, yeah, this guy is not, you know, some great bastion of certainly not libertarianism and not even really conservatism. I would argue that he is a, he's kind of an old school Democrat, um, which, you know, of course, that's to the right of the the. Sure. Fall, <laughs> quickly sweeping left Democratic Party that we have today. But um, that's why I wasn't paying much attention to the election thing, because to me, it's not going to be fundamental difference. I think that I, I got this I got this message the other day. It wasn't a message. It was a Facebook post. And, and it was a guy, kind of a conservative, libertarian leaning guy. And he said something to the effect of, OK, we're going to have looks like we're going to have Joe Biden now and we need to get busy and elect good state legislators and good state judges and, and get busy blocking all of this unconstitutional federal action. I mean, where the hell were you the last four years? You know, <laughs> we're going to be doing the exact same thing in the next four years at the 10th Amendment Center that we were doing in the last four years, trying to block all of this unconstitutional federal garbage that's coming down the pike. And it may be a some level worse in some policy areas with Biden as president. It might be better in some areas. Who knows? But we know that at the end of the next four years, the federal government's going to be bigger. It's going to be deeper in debt and it's going to be more powerful and it's going to be violating more of your rights. And that's going to be true. You know, if, if some some weird thing happened and all of a sudden the I don't guess this could happen. Although I've, I've seen on Facebook that there's still hope for Trump somehow, but I, it doesn't matter which guy is in the, the driver's seat of this broken down car. It's still going to be broken down in four years. You know, I heard, I heard somebody try to make some excuses and bring some libertarians into the, the, you know, Trump circle here by saying, well, Trump really is more libertarian. And I said, no, here's, here's the thing. Maybe because he didn't start any more wars that does not a libertarian make. Also, I said, this is a man that wanted death to death penalty for drug dealers. Mm -hmm. That is pretty much the antithesis of libertarianism. Right. That being said, I think he missed an opportunity. Um, and we'll get into that. We're just going to take a break for our musical sponsors, Roxanne. And when we get back, we're going to talk about a couple of opportunities that uh, Trump might have missed on out on in these four term in these four years. And uh, then ask ourselves, what now? We'll be right back. Music for this program has been brought to you by Roxanne, courtesy of Rat Pack Records. Radio Silence is the album and is available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, RatPackRecordsAmerica.com, and RoxanneBand.com. All right, everybody, Suzanne Sherman, Jeff Johnson, and Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center joining us. Where we left off last time was we're asking the question, what were some opportunities that Donald Trump missed that might have brought 
uh, enough of the libertarian persuasion over, maybe even some of the Democrats that aren't as insane as the hard left. Um, we do have a listener that said he disagreed with something we were saying earlier. I was hoping that he would have expounded upon his disagreement, but he said, see you later. Okay, I hope he does. I hope he does share his commentary. But, you know, were there some opportunities that he missed? I, I think, for one, he should have done what Biden's talking about right now. And the Democrats are saying, let's get out of the, the marijuana drug wars. Yeah. And, you know, Donald, uh, President Obama, here they go. Oh, we knew she was a lefty all along. You know, Ted Cruz chided Obama for saying we're not going to enforce federal drug laws. Well, where are we now? I think it's 36 and counting states that have nullified federal drug laws. We haven't seen any airstrikes uh, called in yet. But I think what we also said was what could happen now is if some of the and we're again not going to waste too much time on this. If some of the elections aren't certified by Pence and not counted and neither one gets to 270, then it goes to the House. And then because we know Republicans are so loyal to Donald Trump, clearly he wins the election and we get four more years of big government, which we're going to get either way. Again, we are not partisan here. So if it is too much for your sensitivities to hear us not gloating and defending President Trump, this isn't the station for you. We examine principles and history and apply those to what's going on today. So uh, anything else that you think he could have done to bring some more people in? You know, I think that Trump had some decent impulses. I, I feel like the biggest problem with Donald Trump is he was never really operating out of any real settled political philosophy. I think he's at his heart a pragmatist. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes his instincts were leading him the right. I think he had some good instincts on foreign policy, but he was never really quite willing to buck the system enough to go all the way. Um, and bring in like John Bolton. And Nick yeah, Hill. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think that, um, I think that he had, he could have handled the, the messaging of the economy better. Um, you know, when he was running for office, he hit the nail on the head when he said that the economy under Barack Obama was a bubble, that it was Fed induced, that, uh, you know, it was smoke and mirrors, that the uh, unemployment was higher than than what was being revealed by the numbers. He got all of that right, that the stock market was a big, fat, ugly bubble was exactly the words that he used during the uh, the campaign. When he got in office, though, all of a sudden, it was his big, fat, ugly bubble. And for political reasons, I think he decided that he needed to, to claim ownership of that so he could claim that it was the greatest economy in American history. I think that was a huge mistake. I wish he would have continued that messaging of, hey, the Federal Reserve is creating an economic bubble here. It's going to pop at some point down the road. Um, you know, COVID kind of saved us in some ways from the, the economic crash that we were heading towards. If you look at 2019, very end of, of, of the year, we started to see the stock market tank in that fall. Federal Reserve actually had come in already and it started artificially lowering interest rates. It started running quantitative easing again, which effectively just means printing money to buy American government debt. All of that was happening before the coronavirus. The coronavirus gave them an excuse to put all of this crazy monetary policy on hyperdrive. And in a way, I think that reinflated the stock market bubble and hid. I think if we had not had coronavirus, we would have had a major economic crash this year 
even without the pandemic. So the pandemic kind of papered over all of that. I think, you know, getting back to my point that Trump had the right instincts on that during the election. And then he kind of abandoned it. And then he started chiding the, the Federal Reserve for not keeping interest rates low enough. And, and he wanted them to do the exact things that he was complaining about them doing uh, during the campaign. So I think that was kind of a missed opportunity. Um, I think he I think he did some good things in terms of, uh, of deregulation. I wish he would have pushed that harder. I wish he would have pushed harder uh, for, you know, controlling government spending, but he didn't. He signed all of those spending bills. Um, so there were a lot of things where his rhetoric was kind of, hey, I, I can get behind this, but he never followed through with actual policy. And that's what was really frustrating about it. Spending bills too, because a lot of people said, well, you couldn't help COVID, but I'm talking before that. Do you remember the first time he said, well, I'm going to sign this budget. I don't want to, but I'm never going to do it again, but I got to keep the government running. I'm just like, no, no, actually you don't burn it down. Right. <laughs> the whole well, but then you know, I'm I'm gonna I, I take issue at pe with people that say, oh, well, you know, COVID he had to he had to do it he had to do it. Well, these are the same people that in 2016, not 2016, in 2008, when we had the financial crisis in the in the Great Recession of of 08, and Obama was running at that time record deficits of one trillion dollars. Oh, the good old day old days of right? dollar deficits. You know, everybody was saying. Oh, this is horrible. Trump, he's he's spending us into oblivion. We're gonna have a tea party, taxed enough already. And and so these are the same people that are now giving Trump a pass for a 3.1 trillion dollar deficit. I mean, that's the same excuse. And I and, you know, it's interesting that this came up because I just read this quote uh by William Pitt the other day, and he talked about that that um the idea of expediency, not expediency. What's, what's the word that he used? Um, that, that it's necessary necessity. He said is the, the root of tyranny. Governments mm -hmm. are always going to say this is necessary because of this or that emergency. That is, and, and we need to act fast. We need yeah. to act fast. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so, you know, if the shoe is on the other foot, if Obama had been a president during coronavirus, I guarantee you that the people that are going, well, Suzanne, we had to do it because of coronavirus, they would be saying, oh, Obama, he's horrible. He shouldn't have done that. So this is a prime example. And I I will bet you dollars to donuts that our, our friend who who left the uh, left the stream because he didn't agree with us. I guarantee you that these people are just wrapped up in their political personality instead of being wrapped up in a principle. I, I've, I've seen it happen. I got the nasty emails for four years from former Tea Party people who were mad at me because I was criticizing Trump for doing the same things that Obama did. I'm just glad that now I'll go back from, you know, I, I won't have to be a libtard anymore. I'll go back to being a neo-Confederate racist. Right. You've got quite the resume. I'm really impressed. <laughs> I do. I, you know, I, try, I, try to be, I try to be inclusive because that's what we're supposed to be in 2020. So yeah, I try to I try to cover everybody. Um, you know, some of the lists of things I was going to bring up: Insurrection Act, martial law, all that. Who cares? What I do want to ask you about, though, is you you just wrote a really good article that ties together the election, the uh, Bill of Rights applicability to the states, and it's why the Electoral College is so important right now. Uh, if you don't mind addressing it, this is from the Tenth Amendment Center again, and it's. Let's see. There's a lot of confusion out there. Senate edition. And you also cite in here 
uh, James Madison about the powers of the federal government being few and, de and defined, those of the states, numerous and indefinite, as well as you mentioned earlier, the interior mechanisms, the lives, liberties, and properties of the people, internal order, improvement, and prosperity of the state. That is the whole purpose of federalism. So for those that think that it's appropriate, given all this electile dysfunction, that we should just get rid of the Electoral College, what say you and what is the premise of that myth? Yeah, so this actually came out of kind of that very question. There was a, a person that was um, talking about the inequities of, you know, having these uh, these rural states, uh, you know, say a Wyoming or a uh, uh, an Idaho or Kansas having two senators, and California, which is much more populous, only having two senators. And and the the idea was that th this isn't fair. This isn't fair representation. And I, I was like, well, yeah, that's true. It's not fair representation because it wasn't meant to be fair. The Senate, the purpose of the Senate was not to represent the people, it was to represent the interest of each individual state. Exactly because the founding generation recognized that some of these really populous states, say in New York or a Pennsylvania at the time, would be able to run roughshod over a less populous state, say a Kentucky. Um, well, Kentucky didn't exist at the at the ratification, but you know it's a good example. It was a yeah. very unpopulated state, and so that's the whole point of the system. That's the whole point of the electoral college. You know to ensure that the people in these smaller rural states have some representation because if you didn't have the electoral college if it was just popular vote you could essentially elect a president just by getting the majority of people in california florida and new york uh you you wouldn't ever have to ever even consider south dakota or wyoming or you know uh, even a, sm a small state like new hampshire they just wouldn't matter in the system um and and the the whole problem is that we are programmed to think of our political system completely backward. We are all taught from kindergarten that this is one nation. It's indivisible. We are all oh one. God. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my liberty. My liberty. That's As not. The door gets kicked down. <laughs> exactly, yeah. With no knock. Um, yeah. The the whole point though is that that we are a union of sovereign independent states, and we don't want. We, we, I, mean, I should say we do want the interests of Wyoming and Idaho and Kansas and Nebraska and, and uh, uh, whatever small state you want to name. We want their interests to be represented in the national government. And I think I made this point in the article. I don't remember if I made it in this article or, or one of the videos I've done kind of related to it. But, you know, again, this goes back to the whole idea that if the federal government was doing what it was supposed to be doing, doing the, uh, you know, the foreign relations, war and peace, uh, big picture things and leaving the life, liberty and prosperity of the people and the internal improvements of the state. If that was left to the states, we wouldn't be worried about the fact that representation in Congress is, is not because the federal government wouldn't be doing all of this stuff. And the federal government wouldn't be able to impose California values on on Wyoming, or you know, if 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 Californians are worried about these hicks in Wyoming, you know, getting some policy that they don't like, that wouldn't be an issue 
if the federal government was limited the way it was supposed to be. And that is exactly why the system exists as it does, decentralized so that the interests of a region and a state are represented by the people there and that the federal government's just doing these small things that, you know, kind of outward facing to the world. Uh, we've turned that on its head. We now have a federal government that has essentially unlimited powers. It dictates how much water is in our toilets, how what kind of light bulb we can screw into our light fixture. It's absurd for these minute things to be regulated by a few people far away in Washington, D.C. Thomas Jefferson, even back when the country was very small, said this country is too large to be governed by a faraway government. Because if we do have that system, we're going to end up with all kinds of corruption and, and abuse. Well, here we are. And uh, Thomas Jefferson, once again, is proven right because we certainly have the corruption and abuse with this huge federal system, not federal system, national system that has replaced the federal system that was intended. We'll be right back after this message about Anchor FM. So what we're seeing now, people are talking about civil war. Donald Trump using some executive order that he put forth in 2018, bringing about the Insurrection Act. Freedom lovers also are calling for martial law. You've been reading uh, Q. Yeah, Q. Right. Um, but the, we have some other we have some other possibly less extreme answers. And you actually have a, a website where you can get an ebook called The Power of No. And uh, Mike Meher MikeMeharry.com or MichaelMeharry.com? MichaelMeharry.com. MichaelMeharry.com. And when you go there, you can uh, sign up for the free ebook, The Power of Known, that tells you all about nullification. Nullification is not an extremist position unless you consider the two extremists that drafted the Virginia <laughs> and the, the Kentucky resolutions, Madison and Jefferson, respectively. Um, when, when we're taught in school, the checks and balances, we have the the triangle, and I share this all the time, of uh, the three branches of government and the eras going back and forth. I loved that stuff. I thought it was cool. I used colored pencils. I really got into that. Absent from our little diagram, which should have been all over the place, state, 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 yes. state, state, state. So as we're now facing a Biden-Harris presidency, which we know is going to be deeply anti-firearm, he's already talked about a $200 uh, tax for the boogeyman assault rifles, as well as magazines. I hope anybody that has them, by the way, is making a list and complete inventory. So your um, you are reporting documents so you can pay the appropriate taxes <laughs> will, will be complete. I mean, like, anyway, how are they going to do that? Once they have the cashless society, that will be viable. Mm -hmm. This is why I said 10 years ago, you better get everything that you need now while you can pay cash. And uh, Kelly's mentioning also, I wanted to share this. I wanted to bring this up. Donald Trump did sign the declaration of national emergency with regards to the health situation. Thanks to all the grants that's coming down for the federal government, everybody that's, you know, blaming their governors and not Donald Trump, the buck stops with him. He declared that emergency. Those funds became available. And I think one governor showed restraint out of 50. And the rest just put on their tiaras and went full chairman. So without the federal grants, without those funds being released, we would not be seeing what we have today. Because I guarantee Utah wouldn't be paying for all these programs and other garbage unless they weren't getting money. And you see all the time when they talk about their programs and the work they're doing, 
well, you can get these federal funds, federal dollars are going to help us. And nobody wants to say, nobody wants to stand up and go, I don't think this is a good idea for freedom or liberty. The president should have done that, even if it would cost him the election, which he was going to lose anyway, as we know, due to voter fraud. I wish somebody would stand up and say the federal government doesn't have any money. Right. <laughs> and if they can print it, why are they taxing us? Right. I mean, think about this for me. They, they ought to change the name of the Department of Treasury. They ought to call it the Department of Debt. Because yeah. all the Department of Treasury is doing is, is figuring out how to try to sell more and more worthless debt to, uh, to reluctant investors out there. And, and, of course, who's really buying a lot of this debt is the Federal Reserve. You know, the Federal Reserve now owns a record 16.5% of all outstanding public debt. So you've got the Federal Reserve with the giant finger on the, uh, on the bond market uh, to, to enable all of this uh, borrowing and spending. That's something that nobody talks about. People just act like this, this money goes out of thin air. And, and the fact of the matter is, even if you're not seeing tax increases, and of course, I, I guarantee you with Biden uh, in the White House, even if, this, if the Republicans maintain control of Senate, there are enough kind of wishy-washy lefties Republicans. I guarantee you're going to have tax increases in the next four years. But that aside, all of this inflation is a massive tax. So you're going to pay for all of this. It's not like it's free money. I wish somebody would make that point too. But you know, It's hard for people to understand because that's a, ne a nebulous concept. Yeah. Well, yeah, we have inflation, but why do we really have inflation? Because the government is spending money to finance these wars, to finance all these unconstitutional programs. So that debt is what is paying for it. I was just going to ask Jeff if he had to weigh in, but he had to go. He has some family stuff. That's why he had to take off. So, um, Mike, as we look in, we're going to just wrap up the show now. We're going to have all these these crazy laws, the states. We're going to talk about firearms laws, mass mandates, grants for for the, um, you know, grants of people have the mass mandates from the federal level now. And uh, how can states say no if they want to? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Uh, I actually wrote a bill report today. So at the 10th Amendment Center, our primary activism is at the state level. And what we do is we try to find ways that states can do things to undermine overreaching federal power, to make it effect ineffective. If it and, costs them money. Yes, exactly. Um, we call this nullification follows the um, blueprint that James Madison gave us in Federalist 46, where he suggested that if the federal government commits an unwarranted act, the uh, the, the the ability to obstruct that is it's right at hand. And one of the things that he suggested is a refusal to cooperate with officers of the union. This is the greatest powers that the state governments have. They do not have to cooperate with the enforcement of any federal law or with the implementation of any federal program. When the federal government says we're going to have a, an assault rifle banned, uh, the state of Utah has every right in the world to say, you know what, you can have your assault rifle banned. We're not enforcing it here in the state of Utah. I want to see it go farther. And if you try to enforce it, we will arrest you. Yeah. So we have this, this, this power. I just wrote a bill report today. We're getting ready to get into the state legislative session. We've already seen a number of, of really good bills pre-filed. Uh, there was a uh, two bills that were pre-filed in the uh, South Carolina House uh, by uh, Stuart Jones, a 
a liberty-minded state representative there in South Carolina. And uh, these would effectively nullify any federal mask mandate that might come down the pike under a Biden administration. One of the bills uh, prohibits any state or local enforcement of a federal mask mandate. So in other words, your local sheriff, your local police department would not be able to enforce such a thing. And the dirty little secret is the federal government ain't got nobody to enforce a mask mandate. The second bill actually prohibits the state or any local uh, subdivision of the state. So any county or city from accepting any funds that would be used uh, in connection with a mask or a vaccine mandate. So this federal money that's going to be dangled out to the states to get them to to uh, enforce Biden's will, that would be prohibited to be uh, accepted by any subdivision of the state of South Carolina. So this is a way that we can basically just say, you know what, there ain't going to be no mass mandate in, in South Carolina because Biden's already said that's how they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. In an odd quirk of the world, the uh, the powers that be actually acknowledge that there is no constitutional authority for the federal government to actually implement a, you know, a, a, a true mandate where they say you must uh, wear a mask and there's no way for them to enforce it. So the plan is to get the states to do it, to bribe the governors, to bribe the mayors to do it. And uh, if this law passes in South Carolina, it won't happen in South Carolina. So other states can follow this. And if you get enough states doing it, then the whole thing falls apart. So we, this, go ahead. I'm sorry. Say, we can apply this strategy to virtually anything that the federal government does from gun control to food laws, to EPA regulations, to healthcare regulations, all of this stuff that the federal government does, it depends on the cooperation of state and local enforcement. When the state and local government says no, the power of no, it's not going to get done. Just like federal marijuana prohibition is effectively done because the states have refused to enforce it. We can do this with anything, including a mask mandate or a vaccine mandate or, or any of this garbage that's coming from Washington, D.C. State fails to do the right thing and keeps marijuana illegal like it's doing in Utah, unless you have a permission slip from your doctor. We have the ultimate arbiter of freedom in that regard, and that is go look in a mirror. Yes. Go look in a mirror, because if you are called to jury duty, God, I wish I'd get called for jury duty. <laughs> if you are called for jury duty, you have the right. The court will lie to you. They will give you jury instructions, and they will tell you if you find these facts as true, you must convict. No, you do not. You have a right to say, I find not only this law unjust, or I find the application of the law as it applies to this case unjust. I refuse to convict. But everybody's intimidated. They go to the courtroom, they dress up, and when the judge comes in, all rise, they stand up and Oh, I got I got I got a lawyer so mad at me on on a, a AM station out here one time. I said I I'm sitting my happy ass down in that chair when that judge comes in, and if they call me out, I'll say you're just a you're just a lawyer just like me. You're just connected, and you've been issued a black government costume. In right. fact, my, my 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 money pays your salary. You should be standing up for me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I want, someone said you're a disgrace. You have no respect for the courts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Let me, let me close <laughs> out. With, point? Let me close out with a great story, and, yeah. and this is the, an example of you don't need government to do nullification. And I actually just heard this on the on the Tom Woods show today. And so, people, if you want to hear the whole story in detail, you can go to uh, Tom Woods' uh, website. I think it's the the actually most recent issue. Uh, 
But there's a, a coffee shop owner in Lexington, Kentucky, which happens to be where I used to live. And uh, he defied the governor's restaurant shutdown order that came down the pike, uh, I guess, about a month, a month and a half ago. And uh, he was basically in a position where if he shut down, he was never going to be able to reopen again. So he's like, well, you know, what do I have to lose here? And uh, long and short of it, he ended up uh, the the health department came and there was court wrangling. It's, it's a great story. I, I encourage you to listen to the whole story. But the long and short of it is there was a um, uh, people were, were starting to realize just how tyrannical the governor was being trying to shut down these uh, these restaurants and stuff. And a whole bunch of them banded together. Uh, they created a kind of a coalition. And I can't remember the number, but there was like thousands of restaurants that had agreed that if the governor extended his shutdown order, they were going to defy it altogether. So a large number of people willing to defy the governor's order. Now, the dirty little secret is we found out when the uh, the health department tried to enforce this governor's order on this coffee shop in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, when it went to the court hearing, the uh, health department in Fayette County had to post a bond in case it lost the case. And it turns out that the health department was having a hard time scraping up the money for this bond. So people realized that if there were a thousand restaurants, there's no way that these health departments could ever post these bonds. It would be completely unenforceable, even through the court system. So they were ready and willing to defy together because they knew there would be no way for them to enforce it. There was no government that needed to step in. It was just a bunch of people that were really basically willing to put the middle finger up. And as it turns out, the governor recognized that, oh God, we can't enforce this. So he uh, did not extend that restaurant closure order. So you don't even need government to do nullification. You just need enough people willing to get together and say, you know what? We are not going to sit down and settle for this kind of tyranny. We're going to stand up against it. We're going to bind together and we're going to and face this as a united front. And I thought that was such a cool story because I love nullification. I love it even better when I don't have to depend on a politician to do it. Yeah. And, you know, let you let your local merchants, restaurants, everybody in your community know that you will support them. You will show up. They open for business. You will show up. If the if the thin blue line shows up to kick you out, stand there, be resolute, you know, be that person to say we're going to we're going to put an end to this. So, uh, Mike Meharry, delighted to have you on again one more time. Where can people follow you? List your books and the other things you do so they can keep learning your wisdom. TenthAmendmentCenter.com, T-E-N-T-H AmendmentCenter.com. First place I would ask that you to go. Uh, like I said, we're getting into the season of state legislative sessions. Most of them will kick off the first or second week in January. And uh, that's our busiest time. That's when we see states beginning to push back. You're going to see a lot of legislation come forth. Republicans are going to suddenly uh, rediscover federalism because they're afraid of Biden. So I'll take that as a win. And uh, we're already seeing a lot of bills being pre-filed. One of the things that I'm most excited about is defend the guard legislation which is now being uh, not only pushed by Representative Pat McGeehan in West Virginia, who has bravely introduced this bill like six years in a row, but it's now being pushed by an organization called Bring Our Troops Home and um, other groups, uh, Young Americans for Liberties involved. We expect to see Defend the Guard introduced in probably about 30 states this year. And this is a piece of legislation that would prohibit the governor from releasing 
National Guard troops into combat situations on foreign soil without an actual congressional declaration of war. So it's a way that actually states can influence foreign policy. I'm really excited about this. So uh, follow that. If you go to our blog, blog.10thamendmentcenter.com, you'll see all of these bill reports as they pop up. We're reporting on on all of these things. We'll keep no. an eye out and have you back when uh, as that develops further. I'll, well, I'll let you go now. Thank you for staying so long with us. I know you just did another show. You probably just had it with sitting in front of the computer nah. and talking. So, all right, everybody, that has been Mike Meharry from the Tenth Amendment Center. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Suzanne Sherman. This has been the Wasatch Report. Thank you.